Blog Talk Radio. Well, folks, it's another Wednesday evening, and <clears throat> you know I got to start the show off with saying, you know, I've been in this business now for for most of my life, so I won't tell you how long, since that'll give out the my age. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I always say nothing ceases to amaze me. I saw something on Facebook the other day, which I thought was uh, kind of interesting and unique, and uh, I'll tell you where you can actually go see it. But there is now what they call removable stone tiles. That's right, I said it, removable stone tiles. Uh, it looks like you put up some kind of a double tape adhesive strip and uh, you place these tiles on there, but the, the strip comes off and the tiles come off very easily. So you can you know, put them around a bathtub, put them on a wall or put them wherever and then take them off and uh, you have a bare wall again. So it's kind of interesting. If you want to see the actual video that I found that was sent to me, you can go to my Facebook page. Just simply go to Stone Forensics and you'll see the Facebook page. And you can just scroll down all my posts there and you'll get to that that point. But uh, that part, I couldn't find any information on it other than what someone sent me in the video, like a name, a brand name or anything. So um, it, it was kind of interesting. So you might want to uh, go ahead and check it out. All right. At the top of the show here, let me go ahead and give out the call in phone number, which is 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. Uh, if you have a question about anything to do with stone or tile, feel free to either call in or uh, you can send me an email directly to fhouston at gmail.com. That's F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com. Or if you happen to be on Facebook, just go ahead and send me an instant message. Again, you can find my Facebook page uh, by just typing in Stone Forensics, and it'll take you right to my page. Um, I guess I'll start off with an announcement. Uh, I've decided to do um, my popular historic stone restoration seminar again. I haven't done one of these in, in a couple of years, and I've had a lot of requests for it. So um, I'm going to be doing one. You might want to mark, mark your calendars or send me an email uh, to find out how you can register for this. It's going to be June 16th. That's next. Uh, yes. No, is it? No, that's a, a month and a half away. I'm looking. I'm thinking I'm in May already. Uh, but it's June 16th, and it's going to be a webinar. Uh, in other words, you don't have to come to me. You don't have to pay for an air, airplane ticket or or hotel or whatever. You just basically um, get com- comfortable with a drink and uh, get on your, your computer and put your earphones on, and you can actually see and listen to the seminar. So, again, that's the Historic Stone Restoration Seminar on June 16th. And uh, just keep an eye on my my Facebook page, or as, as I said, send me an email and uh, we'll get you more information on that as we get closer, uh, closer to that. All right. I wanted to talk about nanotechnology and I've done a lot of research on, on nanotechnology and it seems to be the, the, the key word now that everybody is using for cleaners and sealers that they're using nanotechnology. And I wanted to make sure that uh, everyone pretty much understands what nanotech what, what nanotechnology is so let me just kind of uh, give you a rundown it's basically the study and application of tiny things little little tiny things and it can apply to chemistry biology physics 
material science, even engineering. And um, as I said, I've done a lot of research on it. But to give you an idea of what I mean by tiny things, uh, if you go back to your high school chemistry class, you remember everything is made of atoms and atoms make up molecules. Well, nanotechnology actually works all the way down to the molecule and atom level. So we've developed ways, I didn't, but science has developed ways in order to uh, work with these materials in a, in a nano sense, in the atom and the molecular uh, sense. Now, to give you an idea what a nanometer is, and that's where the term comes from, nanotechnology, a nanometer is a billionth of a meter. That's one billionth of a meter. Now, to give you some perspective on that, there are approximately 25,400,000 nanometers in an inch. So if you want to start marking off an inch and seeing if you can place uh, 25 million, I don't think you'll be able to. It's almost it's microscopic. You can't see it. Uh, a sheet of newspaper, to give you an example, is 100,000 nanometers thick. Now, if you want to look at it on a comparative scale, uh, if a marble were a, man, a nanometer, and what I mean, not the marble that we deal with, but a, you know, one of the shooting marbles, that's one meter. That one meter would be the size of an, of an Earth of Earth in comparison. So it, it gets pretty tricky. Now, the thing I found out about nanotechnology is they're they're working on a lot of things uh, in science and nanotechnology, but few of the chemicals that we deal with are nano nanotechnology. So, you know, you need to be real concerned because a lot of companies are actually using that term as a marketing ploy. And if you think about it, everything's got a nanometer to it because uh, it's just nothing more than a size. So uh, you want to be careful um, making sure that, uh, you know, this is something new and improved and it is a nanotechnology. And I, I would be specific. You know, I would ask for specific, uh, well, what do you mean by, you know, find out if the sales guy knows what nanotechnology is, you know, quiz them on it, take down some notes, what I just had mentioned and ask them, what is a nanometer? How many nanometers are in an inch? And uh, see what they say. All right. As promised, we're going to uh, move on and discuss a few other things besides taking your calls and emails. One of them is going to be impregnators. I've had a lot of questions over over the last uh, couple of a couple of weeks, as well as the last couple of years, and well as my lifetime on on impregnators and sealers and what they do. And I want to dispel some of the stone myths that are out there. So let's start with the stone myths, because I, I think that's interesting. Um, I think I told the story last week or the week before about the individual who uh, said his green marble was was warping and, you know, what we call that hysteresis. And uh, I think I told the story about the little Italian gentleman who claimed that the reason it was doing that is because the uh, there were plants growing in, in the stone. Um, if, if you didn't hear that story, I'm not going to repeat it. Go back to last week's show and listen to it. It's it's kind of a a funny true story. Uh, but anyway, one of the, one of the myths that are going out there is that you know this this green marble warps for any number of reasons. That being one, living plant material being in there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The fact is, green marble. Uh, I explained why in last week's show. Uh, it's sensitive to moisture, and you should never set it in water-based materials only be set in an epoxy. That's myth number one that I have. The second myth is one I, I always giggle at, and I hear 
professionals, people who have been in the business for as long as I have and sometimes even longer, they continue to misuse this word. And the word is efflorescence. And the word they use in place of efflorescence is effervescence. I hear that constantly from, from people. Well, I, I've got a, my, my problem with my floor is, is I've got this effervescence problem. And I always look at them and go, wow, that's interesting. You mean the floor is bubbling? Because remember what effervescence is. Effervescence is when you drop the Alka-Seltzer in the water and it fizzes. That's effervescence. Efflorescence is soluble salts. It's going to be that white powder or white residue on the surface of your stone, concrete, brick, uh, grout, whatever. That's what true efflorescence is. And I always tell my students to remember the word fluorescent and you'll remember the word efflorescent. So uh, again, a big pet peeve, of my, pet, pet peeve of mine is that the word is efflorescence and again, not effervescence. Uh, the next myth that I, I hear not all the time, but I do hear occasionally, is that, well, you know, your marble's dull and it needs to be homed. Now, I'm saying the right word. I'm not saying honed, H-O-N-E-D. I'm saying the word homed, H-O-M-E-D. And obviously, when someone says that, they don't know what they're talking about. They've misusing the word. It is not homed, of course. The word is honed, H-O-N-E. The next myth, and I get this constantly, and I probably have discussed this on, on the show a week or two ago, and that is, oh, that's not a crack. It's a fissure. And what's interesting about this is that if you look up the word fissure and you look at the geological definition of fissure, it is basically a crack. But what we're talking about here is, I guess we could preface it with a natural fissure. Um, it's, it's a... Um, I even hate to use the word flaw, but it's a it's a, something in the stone that's naturally occurring, <clears throat> excuse me, as opposed to a crack which occurs from either installing it or could have happened uh, outside of installation as well. Uh, one of the ways, and again, I think I mentioned that you can tell if it's a fissure or a crack is to run your fingernail across it. If you run your fingernail across it and you can feel it, chances are it's a crack. But also keep in mind a fissure can also become a crack because usually a fissure is the weakest part of the stone. So if the stone is going to crack, it probably will crack along a fissure. But the way to distinguish that is that one side generally will be higher than the other. So, uh, again, um, that's myth number whatever we're up to. The next one is one that perplexes me constantly. Uh, I remember when I first got into this business years and years ago, my dad did installations and used to rec <clears throat> recommend this all the time because he was dealing ceramic tile at the time. And that is, how do you clean your stone? You clean it with vinegar and water. And you guys that are in the business know that this is a fault. You do not use vinegar and water to clean, especially marble. Um, it, it's one of those things that uh, came from the ceramic industry wrong. You should never clean your your stone with marble because it will etch. Vinegar is acetic acid and it will etch calcium-based materials such as marble and some limestone. So, you know, and I, I see it all the time. You know, even even on some of these web searches that I've done, you know, looking at care and maintenance of materials that are being sold, some of them are actually putting on there that they recommend using vinegar. That's a no-no. My recommendation is to always use a product specifically designed for stone. 
Uh, you can get that at, you know, your local big box store. You can get it online. You can get it at uh, any of the, uh, you know, stone care suppliers that are out there. Uh, you, you find it constantly. So, again, no vinegar and water or any acidic materials uh, for that matter. Uh, the next one that I get is to remove oil from a stone, saturate with water, and the water will force the oil out. Well, kind of true. I mean, if you could somehow place the water into the stone in such a way and at such a pressure, of course, water and oil doesn't mix, right? It would force the oil out, but it doesn't work that way. And we can't get, you know, in order to get the type of pressures that you would need to force water in to displace the oil in the stone, you would actually tear the stone apart. So that, that's not that's not feasible feasible at all. However, I will say that what I have used to remove oil out of stone surfaces sometimes in really difficult situations is heat. Uh, you can take a heat gun or a torch sometimes and you can burn the oil out. But uh, don't go ahead reaching for the torch yet. I would reach for a poultice with some degreaser in it before I go ahead and try try that method. I remember years ago, this next one was kind of interesting. I was at a lecture and this was at a stone show and this gentleman was giving a lecture and he was giving a basic, you know, stone care lecture on, I won't mention any names, uh, on, you know, how, how do you tell the difference between marble and granite? And this is what he said. And I about fell on the floor, about raised my hand to correct him, but he, he must have told about 50 falsehoods during this particular presentation. And his comment was, you can tell marble because all marbles have veins. Well, you guys that are in this industry uh, know that's not true. There are many granites. Uh, some of them are, are called nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. They're very veiny. Uh, they will have veins. And I, I can show you some marbles such as Thassos White, uh, Georgia White, Alabama White that has no veins to it at all. It has crystals and actually looks like granite, but we all know that that's marble. So uh, that myth that, you know, just looking at marble and all marbles have veins, it's not true. The next one I still hear, and I know some instructors that still teach this, and it's not true, and that is the darker the stone, the softer it is. Color is not a good indicator of the softness of the material. Uh, case in point, Negromarkina is black. It's very soft material, but then you have black absolute granite, which is black. It's not necessarily soft. Um, there are, are many darker colored granites, Ubatuba, for example, that aren't soft. So I wouldn't go around using the terminology that the darker the stone is, the softer it is. Uh, remember, folks, we're dealing with a product of nature. Uh, it's going to have you know, all different kinds of properties. There, there are obviously exceptions to this rule, but um, uh, just be careful on what, you, what you're saying out there. Uh, the one, another one I like, and this, this was, this was circulating via the solid surface people years and years ago, that you don't want to use granite on your countertops because it harbors bacteria. And of course, bacteria is bad; it'll produce disease. And, and you, I've even been on some websites today that will that will say the same thing. And this is not true. This is not true at all. Um, you know, first of all, without getting into a scientific lecture, in order for granite to harbor bacteria, it has to have a food source. 
uh, and if you're not cleaning your countertops, there's no way for the food source to, to stay in there. Uh, it has to have the proper pH and the right conditions, and it, would, it was rare. As a matter of fact, there was a study done by an association, which I can't remember what the name of the association was right now, that, that did some studies with, I think, 10 or, 10 or so countertops materials. You know, there was wood, butcher block, uh, stainless steel, granite, marble, uh, corian, a whole bunch of them. And granite came out. And then what they basically did is they inoculated it with some uh, bacteria, took some swab samples and whatever they did for this study. I can't remember the exact details. But they found that the second safest material you could use for antibacterial properties was granite. You know what number one was? Stainless steel. So not many people have stainless steel countertops. They look too institutional, too restaurant-like. Uh, but uh, granite is completely safe. As a matter of fact, if you go into some of these um, ice cream stores or candy stores, they're actually rolling candy out or ice cream out on what? On stone surfaces. As a matter of fact, I remember years ago when I was living in Asheville, North Carolina for a while, there was a uh, uh, an ice cream store out there called the uh, Marble I can't remember the marble, marble something, a marble creamery or something like that. And I went in and <laughs> I looked at your countertops and it was granite. And I told the kid behind the counter, I says, you know, you realize the name of your company is marble something or other. And I said, but you have granite here, not marble. And he, he was kind of like, oh, okay, dude. <laughs> but anyway, only us stone guys would, would understand that. All right, let me stop for a minute and give out the phone numbers. If you have any questions, that is 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. And again, you can send me an email at fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com or a instant message on my Facebook. Um, got both of them open right now, both my Gmail and my uh, and my Facebook. So you can go ahead and do that if you have a question or just simply pick up the phone and, uh, you know, give me a holler, give me a call in. All right. Uh, you know, as the years progress, I get grayer and grayer sometimes with some of these falsehood and myths that are out there, but I think I'm going to, uh, uh, let's see, we'll give you maybe one more, one more myth. And I don't know if it's a myth in the general, not, you know, general public, general knowledge, but it's the one I run into all the time. And that is, Hey, just go to the home Depot, go to Lowe's or whatever, pick up a bag of thinset and you can set that, that material and you won't have a problem. And of course we all know that's false. I see again and again and again, numerous failures, with resin back materials. Uh, that's the materials that have a fiberglass back or sometimes not even a fiberglass back, but a actual resin backing on the back. Uh, we had one the other day with had a resin backing with some sand in it. And the idea was that to give it some grip. Well, you can't use water-based setting materials. And if you look on the bag of these materials, you will see that in fact, it will say, do not use on resin back or fiberglass back stones. You have to use an, an epoxy. Um, if anybody knows any different than that, then just uh, simply give me a call and let me, let, let me be aware of that because I, I am not. All right. That's it for my myth questions for, for this week. If you want to send some in, uh, email them to me or give me a call with some. That would be great too. But uh, I want to go ahead and switch things up here a little bit and talk about sealers and impregnators. For years, I have been lecturing on the difference between a sealer and an impregnator. And the problem with calling sealers sealers is that I can take 10 people, 
I can stick them in a room and I can say, what is a sealer? And I will get 10 different explanations. Uh, a sealer to a painter is a coating that goes on the wall to, you know, seal up any stains or discoloration or, or imperfections before you paint. Uh, a sealer to a, a floor, a BCT floor guy is going to be uh, a material that you put on the floor to kind of clog up the pores of the BCT so you can lay your finish on top of it. So, you know, sealers can mean many, many different things. And for that reason, I try not to use the word sealer. And the word I tend to use is either coating or an impregnator. So we're going to talk about the difference between a coating or what scientifically they call a film former or an, an impregnator, uh, something that penetrates below below the surface. Now, there's one other thing I'll mention. We'll get to that later, uh, and that is what we call a consolidant or a densifier. And you guys that deal with concrete know uh, what that's all about, but we'll talk about that uh, after I talk about these differences between sealers or coatings and, and, and impregnators. So first of all, let's talk about coatings. I've basically classify these coatings, film formers, if you will, into two basic categories. That is, they're either strippable or they're permanent. And what I mean by that is that they're easily strippable. So these would be your acrylics, your metal interlock finishes, your typical, if you want to call it grocery floor type finishes that they put lace on, VCT, terrazzo, uh, or whatever that's come off very easily with a water-based water-based stripper, and these are all generally water-based coatings strip off very easy. A permanent coating can be stripped, but not with not easily. So I, I would call them maybe we should call them semi-permanent permanent rather than permanent. And these would be your urethanes, your epoxies, uh, those materials where they're really really difficult uh, difficult to remove. Um, how can you tell, let's say you go on a, a job or you in your home, you know you have some kind of coating on top of your stone or tile. How can you tell the difference? And I think I may have mentioned this before in my, uh, in my show last week or the week before, and that is simple. You take a, a stripper, you know, the, the, uh, that's made for stripping off acrylic coats, and you place it on there. You let it sit for a few minutes. You agitate it. And if it doesn't come off, it's probably an epoxy or it's probably a urethane. That's the case. You want to get yourself a solvent-based stripper, which is what you need to remove these uh, epoxies and, and urethanes, and see if that works. And you can go from there. Now, pregnator is, or what a penetrating sealer is, is these sealers, and I'm going to talk about how they work here in a second, is they, they actually go below the surface. And the example I give everybody, and especially consumers, is this. Uh, they've, all, they've all usually seen Thompson's water seal commercials where they seal the deck and it's sitting not on the surface, but the water beads on it. That's similar to what impregnators do. They basically contain a solvent, which can be water-based, or a solvent being non-water, which contains either silicone or what is known as a fluoroalphatic. Uh, these are resin-based materials that are very, very thin, and they penetrate into the stone surface. The solvent evaporates away, and when I'm, I mean solvent, I'm talking either water or non-water solvents, and you're left behind with a resin in a stone. But since the resin is so thin and coats the individual pores, uh, they're still breathable, which is extremely important. We'll talk about breathability uh, in a minute. 
I get a lot of questions on, well, you know, what, Fred, what do you think is better? Is the solvent-based impregnators better than the water-based impregnators? And generally, my thoughts are that if you want really good protection and you want that protection to go in fast and deep, you're probably going to go with a solvent-based impregnator. But with that said, the chemistry for water-based impregnators today are, are becoming really close to performing as well as the solvent-based impregnators. So, um, you know, someone's going to ask me, well, Fred, what impregnator, what brand impregnator do you recommend? And to be completely honest, I don't think it really matters. Um, as long as you apply them properly, and we'll get, we'll get to that, that in a minute as to how you apply them properly. Now, with impregnators, whether we're talking water-based, whether we're talking solvent-based, you have two properties you're looking for. You're looking for it to be hydrophobic, and you're looking for it to be oilophobic. Hydrophobic simply means it fears water. It's water repelling. The other is oilophobic, which simply means it repels oil. Now, technically, there isn't a word known as oilophobic. That's a word that we have made up in our industry. Uh, I believe the scientific name is lyophobic. Um, but it's either hydrophobic or oilophobic. Many of the impregnators today are both. They're both good for water. They're both good for they're both good for oil. Now, generally speaking, the silicone impregnators. If you see the word silane, siloxane, methyl silicate, those are usually your silicone-based uh, products. Those are really excellent water repellents, and not so much a good oil repellent. The fluoros, or what they call the fluoroalphatics, are really good for both oil and water. And, and a simple way to tell is to just look at the label. Sometimes it'll say contains, you know, silicone contains siloxane, silane contains a fluoroalphatic of some kind, or just go to the safety data sheet. Look at the safety data sheet, and uh, if you see that word, if you see any kind of ane on it, siloxane, silane, or whatever, it's probably silicone-based. If you see the word fluoro, uh, whether, you know, fluoro something on there, then you're probably dealing with a floral alphatic. All right. Uh, I'm open for callers before I move on here. And the number again is 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. Again, if you're not listening live or you're listening live, it doesn't really matter. You can send me an email, which is F Houston, F H U E S T O N, at gmail.com. If I don't get your email now within the next 20 minutes, we'll get to it next week. So feel free to email me anytime uh, during the week, and we'll save your question for that particular, uh, particular show, which we will have uh, next, next week. Okay, moving on. Um, Let's talk about some advantages and disadvantages of both these coatings and impregnators. Let's first look at coatings. There's a little experiment I do. Uh, most of you know that know me, have been to my lectures, know that I'm not a really big fan of coatings when it comes to stone surfaces, uh, particularly flooring. Um, and, you know, the coating companies always want to use the word um, sacrificial coating. They love that word. It's a sacrificial coating. What we're doing is we're putting a coating on top of the stone. So now the coating will take all the damage. It'll, it'll hold all the dirt and it won't ruin the stone. And that's not true. And I'm going to give you a little experiment to do that will prove that's not true. And it's a very simple experiment. All you want to do is take a tile. Take a 12 by 12 tile, a black Negro Marquina tile works really well for this experiment. And 
take a piece of tape and place it down the middle of the tile. So now you have it in half. You've got, you know, the polished, natural polished surface on one side. On the other side, I want you to place a coating, um, you know, particularly a strippable coating like an acrylic or, or any of those type of coatings. And just place that coating for manufacturer's directions on that, on that tile. So now you have this tile that has a coating on one side and has a natural polish on the other side. Now take that tile and stick it into a, a room, a garage, somewhere where it's going to get dusty, you know, really dusty. Uh, if you have a shop, stick it in your shop. It'll get dusty pretty quick. If it's in a home, stick it in your garage. Let it get dusty. Let it, let it sit there for a couple of days, a week, or, or, or two weeks. Now, once it's sat there for that long, I want you to come back in a week or two, and I want you to take a terry cloth towel. And I want you to just kind of lightly brush it across the surface from going from the polished side, the natural polished side, right on over to where the side is coated. And what you will notice is this. First thing you'll notice is that the dust removes pretty easily off the natural polish. It just comes right off. As a matter of fact, if you were to blow, uh, you know, blow on it, it would probably just blow right off. You go on the other side and you'll notice that the, that towel actually drags. And if you blew on it, you notice that the dust wouldn't blow away as readily as it does on that side. So what's that tell us? That tells us that the coating is now a dirt magnet, which simply means that it is holding the dirt in place. So when someone steps on it, they're actually grinding the grit and dirt into the stone. Now, I've done not only that little bench scale experiment, but I've actually done the experiment in the field. I took three hotels. This is years ago I did this experiment, and we took and we coated half of a lobby or half of a hallway and left the other side naturally polished. And we let it set for a month. And we came back and stripped the coating off the coated side, obviously, and uh, looked at it. And we noticed that the coated side actually had more scratches and more wear than the uncoated surface. So it kind of proved my theory here that um, most coatings are going to actually attract dirt. So I will argue that they are not sacrificial. I remember, you know, years and years ago um, when I first got into the restoration business, I had a heck of a time convincing people to go to a natural polish, not only on stone, but on terrazzo. And I'm finally glad to see at my age and over, you know, 40 years that this trend is pretty much disappearing. Uh, we still see it, but not as readily as I as I've seen in the past. I remember, you know, going to malls, going to, you know, office buildings, and it's all they ever did was coat these materials. So we don't see that very often. I mean, there are some advantages to coatings. I mean, some coatings will add slip resistance, although a naturally polished marble, granite, limestone, or whatever is going to also be slip resistance and. I am not going to go into that that topic and the slippery scissors topic. Actually, I'll leave that for some other uh, show because uh, it, it'll take me a whole show to go over uh, everything we need to know about slippery resistance. But in, in some cases, uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, coatings, can, depending on the type of coating, can be applied below grade. Uh, in some cases, where in other words, below ground level, where uh, impregnators will not. Uh, coatings will generally provide instant luster, where you know, impregnators obviously don't do anything. They don't provide any any luster at all. They shouldn't, otherwise they wouldn't be a true impregnator. Now, of course, the disadvantages, as I've mentioned, uh, some other disadvantages of a coating is that they they leave what I call an acrylic look or a wavy plastic appearance to the to the stone. Uh, poor quality coatings can turn yellow. 
Uh, this is especially true if it's exposed to uh, UV light. And they're going to require frequent reapplication and stripping, which is, which is a problem. And most will actually block the breathing of the stone. So those are your disadvantages of coating, and I guess you could, I guess you could say I'm pretty much against coatings for the, for the most part. So let's take a look at impregnators, both the advantages and disadvantages. Well, one of the advantages is that most cases they won't change the color of they won't change the color of the stone. Uh, there are some rare cases I've seen some limestones with certain impregnators that if you apply them they permanently darken. In other words, they act as a color enhancer. Um, but in most cases they won't, which, you know, again, what you do is you always, always want to test, 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 test first. Uh, and actually, uh, we got a question uh, that just came in. What is the difference between limestone densifiers versus impregnators? And I'm, uh, hold that question for one minute. Let me finish this, this section and I'll, I'll get to that question for you, Scott, uh, in a minute. So we're on the advantages. Um, most impregnators don't use, don't need frequent applications. Uh, in other words, you know, unlike a coating, which you may have to apply once every week, month, bi-monthly, twice a year, or whatever, depending on the on the traffic, impregnators can usually last years. Now you got to be careful because there are impregnators out there that are making claims, lifetime warranties, you know, 10-year, five-year, 15 warrant, you know, whatever warranties there are. And the only thing I would caution you there is to read the disclaimers, because you may find the disclaimers say something like, "If you only use our cleaning products, we will only guarantee them." So actually look at that at that warranty. Um, but, you know, you, you can't always believe what they say as far as, you know, the application goes. And I'll tell you what we do to uh, tell whether the stone needs to be um, impregnated again or not or sealed again or, or whatever. Again, remember, impregnators are below the surface, so they generally are not UV sensitive. Now, bringing up that issue, many people ask me, well, can they be used outdoors? And I've had arguments with various people here. And, yes, they can. But I tend to be real hesitant about sealing stone in an outdoor situation, depending on the situation, depending on the environment. You know, you have Florida versus Arizona. Uh, you have de-icing salts up north that you don't have in Florida or the southern southwestern states. So uh, there are always exceptions to the rule, but generally I don't recommend using impregnators on, on the outdoors. Um, some of the disadvantages, of course, they're a little expensive. Uh, they won't provide acid resistance. You know, a lot of people say, well, you've sealed my floor um, and I spilled, you know, lemonade on it and it's still etched. You know, I paid for sealing. You got to explain to your customer that that's, that's not the case. These are, the impregnators are made to buy you time, not make the stone stain proof, stain resistant. So we mentioned the initial cost and probably the most important thing is that they still allow the stone to breathe, which is extremely important. Okay, let me get to some of your questions. Let me handle Scott's question, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, what are the differences between a densifier versus an impregnator. Um, <clears throat> you'll hear the word densifier, or you hear the word consolidant used, and densifier and consolidants are pretty interchangeable. And what these densifiers and consolidants are designed to do is to bind the stone back together and make it make it harder. So you could take a a stone that's very soft, very weak. In other words, I shouldn't use the word soft, very weak. Uh, say a stone that's falling apart, and these densifiers will actually bind it back together. Now, with that said, some densifiers 
and some consolidants are also sealers, but most of them are not. Most of them are designed to either harden a stone because they have, they're actually mineral based. They're either barium, lithium, uh, fluoro, silicates, or whatever that actually become part of the stone itself. Now, what an impregnator is, an impregnator is not a densifier. It won't, it won't densify, it won't consolidate the stone. It'll actually just protect it because they're using a resin. So your densifiers, to make it simple, your densifiers are not resin-based. Uh, your impregnators are resin-based. So impregnators will either have a silicone or a fluoro, where your densifiers will either have a fluorosilicate, uh, a silicate of some type, uh, aluminum, magnesium, or whatever. Uh, might be lithium, might be barium, but they're all salts, basically. So salts versus resins. And that's the difference. You would use a densifier or a consolidant in a situation like a terrazzo, for example. Remember, terrazzo is concrete. And you can densify concrete to make it harder if you have a, a, a concrete that's not polishing. A lot of guys will use these densifiers on concrete and, and on the terrazzo. There are some densifiers that work on stone as well, but you have to be careful because there is a difference between a densifier from marble and limestone, your calcium-based materials, versus your densifiers uh, for granite, granite or concrete. So hopefully, Scott... <clears throat> that answered your question. And anybody else has any questions, what Scott did there is he uh, messaged me on Facebook. Feel free to go ahead and do that. Just search for Stone Forensics or go ahead and call in if you'd like. 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. And I'll give the email out one more time, which is F Houston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com. And as I said, uh, several times. If you don't email me now, uh, go ahead and email me throughout the week, and we'll get to your uh, and get to your questions. Uh, I want to get to some of the frequently asked questions about sealers, consolidants, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but before I do, let me add mention at the top of my show that I am doing a webinar. So you don't have to get on the airplane and pay all that money for airfare and uh, hotel, whatever. Uh, on June 16th, on historic stone restoration. So we're going to talk about everything that has to do with entering the historic stone field. And, and, and I guess you could say historic stone is tile as well. Uh, we're going to talk about, you know, the techniques that you use to restore stone, how to deal with architects, and how to market uh, those particular uh, services. Uh, so if you're interested in that, just go ahead and send me an email. Uh, we're currently writing up the description for that as we speak, and uh, we'll go ahead and get you the information to sign up for that seminar. Again, Historic Stone Restoration Seminar on June 16th, uh, which is uh, no, not too far away. All right, let's get to some frequently asked questions. First, let me get a drink here and wet my whistle. Some of the questions we get about impregnators, coatings, and, and densifiers. Um, how they work, I think we've already discussed how they work. Uh, they penetrate below the surface. They don't completely close up the pores. You know, a lot of them are very breathable. But you know, let, let me stop right there and talk about that. When they use the word breathability, what does that actually mean? I mean, obviously, stone doesn't have a set of lungs, so it can't breathe. But it has to transpire. But what does it transpire? It transpires vapor. Okay, so when you boil a... A, uh, a pot of water, you get that steam, that's the actual vapor. And you have to remember that for several reasons. And I get calls all the time from fabricators, from consumers, when it comes to granite countertops 
that have been impregnated. They've been, you know, we impregnated it 20 times. It repels water like crazy. We've even tried oil in the shop and it's oil stays on top of it for days. But when we put it in the customer's house, it now does what? It now has stains. Why? Well, remember these impregnators are resins and anything hot heat will penetrate. So hot oil splatter can sometimes penetrate, actually soak in below the impregnator and it actually displaces the, the resin, melts the resin and leaves the oil stain behind. Now I mentioned vapor. Where vapor is important for breathability is in a steam shower. You can put these impregnators all over, a, let's say, a granite steam shower till the cows come home. And when you turn the water on, the water is going to nicely bead off and on the shower. But as soon as that steam hits that, it's going to penetrate into the wall. Vapor. It's a vapor permeable. You know, maybe I should use that word instead of breathable. I know a lot of the um, companies like to use the word breathable, but it's vapor permeable, uh, which means a vapor will go go through it. Also, these impregnators, if you put them under enough, if you put water under enough pressure, for example, if you're going to pressure wash, a, say you've uh, used an impregnator on a granite sidewalk outside and you go ahead and pressure wash it, you can actually force water into that stone. So be very, very careful there. So I get this question all the time, but why is breathability? Why is this, this uh, you know, the stone being able to breathe important? It's very important. Very important because especially on the floor, not so much on the countertop, but on the floor especially because now you have your tile, you have your setting mortar, and then you have your your substrate, whether it be a wood substrate or a slab substrate, and water is going to want to go up. So you're going to get even just condensation. Uh, it doesn't have to be you know actual water sitting on top of there. It's going to want to go up. If you block that, it, it's going to build up and it's going to carry salts with it. The water is going to carry salts through the setting bed. And what's going to happen? It's going to be blocked. It's not going to be able to come out. And then what happens is it starts a condition we know as spalling, S-P-A-L-I-N-G, spalling. So that's why breathability is extremely important. Uh, we mentioned the types of impregnators out there, the silicone derivatives, the floral alphatics. We've made that. This is a really important question is, are these impregnators safe for food handling areas? And the answer to that question is, yes, it is. Uh, a lot of uh, the sealer companies, I'm using the word sealer again, these companies that sell these impregnators now have FDA approval. But what's interesting about FDA approval is they're really not approving the the product, they're approving the product as it's applied to the substrate. So, for example, where would you be concerned about food handling would be in a kitchen countertop. Now, also remember that these impregnators go below the surface. So once the solvent, you know, evaporates away, you're dealing with a product that's inside the material, not sitting on top. So it's going to be safe. Um, next question I get all the time about impregnators, what problems do you see with impregnators? I would say the number, if I had to say, what is the number one problem you see with impregnators? And that's misapplication. Um, I had mentioned earlier that, you know, if you, there's a proper way and an improper way to apply impregnators. The problem I see, first of all, is that someone will go in not knowing how these materials work. They'll put it on the floor, either with a lambsville applicator, mop it on, spray it on, whatever, and just let it sit there. Uh, you never want to do that with impregnators. You want them to soak into the stone and then wipe off the excess. 
and the calls I get on these, you know, my, my floor is sticky. I got a hard crust on my floor or whatever. Uh, it's because the impregnator is laid on top of the, of the material. Now, I mentioned that I'm really not a person that, that recommends brands, at least not, not now in the open and not in public. And I believe that I can take almost any impregnator, if applied in the way I'm going to tell you in a minute, they'll all work effectively. And that is the first thing you want to make sure is you're dealing with clean stone. Clean it. You don't want dirt on it. Uh, secondly, you want to remove any coatings that are on that stone. So strip them off. And thirdly, and perhaps the most important thing, is make sure the stone is dry. If the stone is, let's say you just clean the stone, well, the stone is still going to be wet. The water is filling those pores. Now, if you're placing you know, your, your impregnator on top of that stone, it's not going to go where the pores are. So you want to make sure it's dry. I would, I recommend that any of you guys that are doing this type of work that you go ahead and pick yourself up a moisture meter. You can pick one up at any of the big box stores. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, just make sure it's dry. If it's dry, the impregnator is going to soak in. Now, Next thing you want to do is apply the impregnator. And when I say apply the impregnator, I mean to saturate the stone with the impregnator. And oftentimes I'll read the instructions on the back of a lot of these impregnators and they'll say, apply one to two coats. And I always laugh at that instruction. I'll say it again. Apply one to two coats. What is a coat? You're not painting a wall. If you're painting a wall, you can see that coat go on there. With these impregnators, you can't see. So a lot of people will just apply, you know, like they're painting painting a wall or painting a surface. And then they'll apply another one. And you're not putting a lot of impregnator on it. In order to get these impregnators to work properly, you want to saturate the stone. Let it penetrate for a good five or ten minutes. If it doesn't soak up in that short period of time, apply more. So that's the proper way. And you do that, overall, these impregnators are, are pretty, uh, pretty trouble-free. Trouble Next question, how often do I apply these impregnators? Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, if you buy an impregnator that's guaranteed for life, don't believe it. Read the disclaimers. Uh, but here's your test. Place some water on top of the countertop. Now, if it doesn't bead, if it beads, that's great. But if it doesn't bead, that doesn't mean it's not sealed. What you want to look for is darkening of the stone. So, you know, place your water on top of it, a couple of drops of water. Let it sit there for a minute or two. If you can wipe it away with a towel or pa uh, paper towel or something and it's still, it's gone and there's no discoloration, it's, 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 it's impregnated properly. Uh, if not, if you see a dark area there, aha, uh -huh, you've got an issue. Then it's time to reapply the impregnator. So, you know, generally they'll say, well, how often is that? Well, it depends. I mean, I've done houses where the kitchen is used once a year, and I've done houses where the kitchen is used two or three times a day. So obviously that particular kitchen is going to be often then than a kitchen that it, that it, that is not used that often. So use your judgment. Um, you know, if you're in the restoration business, you want repeat business. I would tell a customer just to be on the safe side. I can come in, you know, once a year. I'll clean your countertops out and repair anything that needs to be repaired and re-impregnate the countertop countertop again and let's see the last one I have and I think I've, I've went over this one is our sealers and impregnators UV resistant and generally they are be the impregnators are because they penetrate below the surface but um, uh, coatings are generally not there are some coatings out there that are UV resistant uh, they're very expensive uh, they require 
a professional application, and some of them even require that you become certified and how to apply those. So anyway, all right. So I think that's going to do it for our show this week. Um, if uh, you have any questions, uh, again, uh, send me an email at fhouston at gmail.com. That's F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com. Uh, don't forget to keep an eye on my Facebook page at Stone Forensics. Uh, check out my website if you want to as well, stoneforensics.com. I'll have a uh, announcement on there for when we're going to um, start taking registration for the Historic Stone Restoration Seminar. Uh, it's going to be a webinar, so you don't have to uh, have to attend. So uh, we will see everybody again here next week, next Wednesday at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great rest of the week and a great weekend. This is Fred Houston. So long for now.